0: The last time I preached, I think it was the collective stomach growl of the congregation that eventually brought an end to the sermon. I will uh, do my best today to get us out at a, at a, at a reasonable time for, for lunch. Um, this morning we're going to be uh, studying from the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 7. Um, how's the sound? Over there guys, great, great. So turning your your Bibles to uh, Ezra chapter 7 and we're going to read this chapter together. We have obviously a lot of material to go through, um, but I hope that we'll be able to unfold all of this and that you guys will be blessed and encouraged, uh, convicted, um, as I was in my uh, study of, of this chapter here. So Ezra chapter 7 verse 1. Says now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shallum, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Moriah, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzai, son of Bukai, son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested, because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king, for on the first of the first month he began to go up from Babylon, and on the fifth, first of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem, because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Verse 11, now this is the copy of the decree which King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra, the priest, the scribe, learned in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace. And now I have issued a decree that any of the people of Israel and their priests and the Levites in my kingdom who are willing to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For as much as you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God which is in your hand, And to bring the silver and gold, which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold, which you find in the whole province of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and of the priests who offered willingly for the house of their God, which is in Jerusalem. With this money, therefore, you shall diligently buy bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the... Uh, altar of the house of your God which in Jerusalem. Verse 18, whatever seems good to you and to your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. Also, the utensils which are given to you for the service of the house of your God deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. The rest of the needs for the house of your God, for which you may have occasion to provide, provide for it from the royal treasury. I, even I, King Artaxerxes, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the provinces beyond the river that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law, of the God of heaven, may require of you, it shall be done diligently, even up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil and salt as needed. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be done with zeal, for the house of the God of heaven, so that there will not be wrath against the kingdom of the king and his sons. We also inform you that it is not allowed to impose tax, tribute, or toll on any of the priests, Levites, singers, doorkeepers, Nethinim, or servants of this house of God. You, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the river, even all those who know the laws of your God, and you may teach anyone who is ignorant of them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed upon him strictly, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of goods or for imprisonment. Verse 27, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart. To adorn the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem, and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word together and to study it. Lord, your word is living and active and powerful, and we pray that it would do its work in our hearts today. I ask that you would use me as as imperfect of a vessel as I am to speak your words, and may your spirit provide insight and understanding as we Read and study your word together, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I wanted to start off this morning by sharing the story of Helen Tauzig. Many may not be familiar with Dr. Tauzig. However, she is beloved in the field of pediatric cardiology and pediatric cardiac surgery. Helen Tauzig was born at the turn of the 20th century in 1898 and she pursued her higher education and her professional development at a time where many inequalities existed for women desiring to pursue professional training and careers. Growing up she struggled with dyslexia at a time where its recognition and therapy options were limited or very rudimentary. Yet in spite of this she ended up attending college at Radcliffe and then completed her undergraduate education at Berkeley. this was then followed by an attempt to study at Harvard for which she was turned down from being able to sit on sit in on classes again because of her gender and as a result she ended up pursuing studies at Boston University instead she was fascinated with mammalian biology and decided to pursue a career in medicine which brought her to Johns Hopkins through some good fortunes and efforts by Uh, I guess we could call them the early feminists who worked with Johns Hopkins University to provide scholarships for women to attend uh, for medical school and she completed training in pediatrics and cardiology and remained at Hopkins to develop a pediatric heart clinic. This was then shortly followed unfortunately by her losing her hearing in 1930. Yet another challenge that she would overcome by training herself to feel heartbeats rather than hear them her path eventually led her to care for children with congenital heart disease what she is probably most well known for is her efforts to care for blue babies or babies born with a condition called Tetralgia Fallot and her collaborative work in 1944 with Dr. Alfred Blaylock and his associate Dr. Vivian Thomas would eventually pioneer a procedure a life-saving procedure known as the Blaylock Tausig shunt, a procedure that is still widely used today to help children born with a variety of kinds of congenital heart disease. Dr. Tauzig's contributions to the field of pediatric heart care have literally helped thousands upon thousands of children. Her th- tireless work has impacted and continues to impact our field today and her example of perseverance and passion still influences those who are training to become tomorrow's pediatric cardiologists. This is the lasting impression that Dr. Tauszig has made. Now, I know we can probably think of similar stories of individuals that have had positive, long-lasting impacts on others, uh, who have left a lasting legacy, who have made a lasting impression and it shows us, then, the power and the impact of good impressions, of good reputations, and lasting legacies. And I think God's word, and as we will unfold today in Ezra 7, I think God's word is very clear that the impression and the reputation and the legacy left by believers is important. Would you not agree? And why is it so critical? we look in Jeremiah 3, Jeremiah the prophet here talks about Israel and Judah. And remember, Israel was God's chosen nation. He had sovereignly chosen Israel to be his special nation, set apart, different from all surrounding nations. And this is what Jeremiah had to say in verse 6. He said, have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. I thought after she had done all these things, she will return to me, but she did not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it, and I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. Because of the light of her harlotry, Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception. So we have the chosen nation of Israel, and we know that the the kingdom was divided into Israel and Judah, but we have the chosen Israelite race, if you will, this people chosen by God, given a special calling, being set apart. And rather than living in a manner that would reflect that special calling and that that being set apart, they intertwined with the world and looked no different from the world around them. And the same can be said of today in professing believers, right? That more and more believers no longer seem to look any different than the sinful and depraved world around us our impression as believers must show where our allegiance lies. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul says to Timothy, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, Irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And Paul tells Timothy, "Avoid such men as these." You see, our, the reflection of our lives, the impressions that we make and the legacy that we meet that we leave must be different. And not only that, our impressions must point the world around us to who they must obey and ultimately who they must give an account to. So today we're going to look at six elements that make up at least part of what I called the believers or the Christians ultimate eternal impression. And we're going to do that by studying the character of Ezra this morning as laid out for us in chapter 7. And to give some background here, Ezra was a Jewish priest and a scribe in royal Persia, and he is credited as writing the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, as well as First and Second Chronicles. Ezra and Nehemiah, by the way, were thought to be a single book that was later divided uh, with subsequent translations, but the original text was thought to be a single book. And Ezra was a scribe, as I mentioned, in royal Persian. in that role and capacity, he had special access to royal records, which, included, which he included in his writings. And that's what we're going to see here today. We're going to see the royal writing, a royal decree from King Artaxerxes that reflects the character and conduct and ultimately the impression that Ezra left on the king. Now, some additional background, the events of Ezra occur... With the Jews returning back to Jerusalem after their period of exile, as we had mentioned, that the the Israelites and the Judean Jews had had a recurring pattern of sin and rebellion against God, and God had forewarned them if they persist in that way that there would be consequences. He had prophesied and told them and warned them that they would be exiled, and we can see that recorded in. Passages such as Jeremiah chapter 31 and Ezekiel chapter 20. In 605 BC, the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem and issued three waves of deportations of the Jews into exile. And the Judean Jews were then in captivity and exile for 70 years. And under King Cyrus the Persian, who conquered the Babylonians in 539 BC, Uh, the decree was issued that permitted the Jews to return to Jerusalem. And so what we see in Ezra is basically a wave of Jews returning back to Jerusalem. The first wave, there were three waves that occurred over the span of 90 years. In the first return, or the first wave of return, this was led by Zerubbabel. This is documented in Ezra chapters 1 through 6. And during this first return, the Jews built the second temple. Ezra himself would lead the second return, and that's what we see documented here starting in chapter 7 through chapter 10. And under Ezra's leadership, he reinstituted right worship led by the priests and the sacrificial processes that God had previously instructed of the Jews. And the third return was under the leadership of Nehemiah, which is chronicled in the book of Nehemiah, where the Jews rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. So this morning, we're going to look specifically at Ezra and his return with the Jews back to Jerusalem. And it was done uh, according to a decree that was issued by King Artaxerxes, as we see here at the beginning of chapter 7. And I think before we get into the meat of this text, it's important to understand two things so that we can have an understanding of how we're going to approach the rest of the chapter. Number one, we must understand that this decree from Artaxerxes did not come from someone who personally professed faith in and obedience to the one true God. There is no historical evidence that King Artaxerxes was a believer and follower of God, We know that idol worship was rampant at that time in the Persian Empire and historical accounts would even mention that King Artaxerxes relied on diviners to help him make his decisions and diviners were people who would look to nature for signs to help guide uh, subsequent decisions and plans. So we have nothing here that tells us that King Artaxerxes issued his decree because he was a follower of God himself. And number two, then we must see and understand that this decree then was written as a response to what King Artaxerxes observed in the character and conduct of Ezra. And therefore, it is reflective of the impression that Ezra made on the king. And there are other examples of this type of behavior or responsive decrees in scripture. We can see from the book of Daniel, for example, in Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar issued a decree for people to worship the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this following their encounter with the fiery furnace. And then a few, chapter la- few chapters later in Daniel chapter 6, King Darius again issued a decree for all people to bow and worship to the God of Daniel after witnessing Daniel's preservation in the lion's den. And so we see this pattern of God using heathen kings in response to what they saw and the impressions made by godly men on them to issue decrees that would ultimately bring about God's purposes for his people. Now, starting here in Ezra 7, uh, in the first 10 verses here, in verses 1 through 5, Ezra basically lays out for us his family tree, his pedigree. And we see a list of names there that culminates in verse, uh, verse 5 with Aaron The chief priest. And so we can see here that Ezra came from a special pedigree. He came from the family line of high priests. And we know that this line was sovereignly chosen by God. And these men were chosen by God not for any merit of their own. We know, in fact, that many of the priests were blatant sinners. Aaron himself, we can remember, had a hand, had a major hand in building the golden calf that was worshiped at Mount Sinai and we recall his descendants Nadab and Abihu for example who were struck dead immediately struck dead when they offered strange fire sort of taking an irreverent approach to their role as priests and so there wasn't anything uniquely special about these men aside from the fact that they were sovereignly chosen by God to serve as the priests initially in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple in verse 6 Ezra says he went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses. So Moses, And so here we see a little bit more of who Ezra was. Ezra was a scribe. The original Hebrew word for scribe, sophron, was originally used simply to denote people who knew how to write. And so royal officials who had the job of writing and recording the archives of the proceedings of each day, they were called scribes. And the word scribes, or sophrum, eventually became synonymous with with wise men. And and we can imagine that if you were able to write at that time that you were probably a pretty intelligent person. And so it was fitting then to be called a wise person as well as a scribe, A, a scribe then to embrace both the abilities of having knowledge and being able to write. And so it was right then for Ezra to be called a scribe. He was clearly skilled. In the knowledge of the law of God it is said that Ezra was able to recite the law of God from memory and he was also able to write it of course and he had the unique role as a Jew working as a scribe in the royal Persian palace. Notice in verse 6 Ezra is very careful and clear to state God's role And what is occurring in verse 6, he says, He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested. Why? Because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. So Ezra is very careful and clear to state from the beginning God's role, God's sovereign role in everything that's going on here We come to verse 7. In verse 7 here, he lists the people that would come with him from Babylon back to Jerusalem. We see that there are common Jews as well as all of the people that would be involved in service in the temple. And then in verses 8 and 9 here, Ezra then documents the journey itself. He says, "...they came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon, and on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. And so we can see here that the journey took them four months. And looking at the geography between Babylon and Jerusalem, we know that this roughly covered about a thousand miles. And you can guarantee that they had quite a bit of stuff that they took with them. And finally, I think that it is safe to say that they likely encountered opposition along the way. And we can say that because Ezra is very careful here in verse 9 to say that he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. And elsewhere in the book of Ezra, as well as in Nehemiah, we can look back at Ezra 4. And in Nehemiah 4, Ezra writes of the opposition that the Jews encountered during their journeys back to Jerusalem and during their work to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the wall. In Ezra 4, for example, we see that the enemies of Judah actually went to the king at that time and asked the king, the Persian king at that time, to issue another decree to tell them to stop building the temple. And in Nehemiah, you remember that as the Jews were rebuilding the wall, their enemies would come around and would mock them. And we would read of how the Jews had to build the wall with one hand and had their hands on a weapon with the other one just because they were facing such opposition. And so I think we can infer here from verse 9 that this four-month journey not only was physically taxing, but also filled with opposition. And we come here to verse 10 now, and Ezra here provides us with a very succinct description of who he was. It says in verse 10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. So here Ezra describes himself, he says that he set his heart, the word, the Hebrew word for that means to prepare or to make ready. So he made ready, he prepared his heart to do what? To study the law of the Lord. And the word here for study means to diligently seek or to inquire. And so here Ezra prepared himself. He made himself ready, continually did this so that he could diligently study the law of the Lord. It also says that he practiced it. He committed himself to doing what the law said. And finally it says that he taught his statutes and ordinances, the ordinances and statutes of God to Israel. And the word here for teach means that he taught in such a way that it shall come to pass if the hearers would diligently learn. So in other words, Ezra taught in a way that people would be able to understand the law of God and therefore they would be without excuse in terms of applying it. They could not claim that they didn't understand it, okay? So Ezra personally was invested in preparing himself to study the law of God to meditate on it to apply it and then he taught it in a manner that would enable the Jews to learn and apply it as well and all of this introduction now brings us to the rest of the chapter which we're going to spend the remainder of our time on uh, looking specifically here in verses 12 through 28 And here we're going to see six elements that comprise at least part of the ultimate eternal impression of the believer. And starting in verse 12 here, in verses 12 through 14, we're going to see the first element, and that is a publicly apparent faith and obedience. Here in verse 12 through 14, we see King Artaxerxes, king of kings to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of of the God of heaven, perfect peace. And now I have issued a decree that any of the people of Israel and their priests and the Levites of my kingdom who are willing to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For as much as you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Now obviously when we look at this introduction to King Artaxerxes' decree, he has already placed a tremendous amount of confidence in Ezra. And very clearly, the king himself knew that Ezra was a scribe of the law of the God of heaven, and he was a religious leader that provided oversight to the Jews. And he must have done this job very well, because the king was willing to let all of the Jews, whoever was willing to go with Ezra back to Jerusalem and to be under Ezra's leadership. So clearly we can see from this that Ezra was very open, if you will, about his faith and obedience to God. It was very apparent to anyone then, especially the king, that Ezra demonstrated outward faith and obedience to God. Not only that, in verse 14... It says, for as much, and we can word that differently. We can translate that as therefore. Okay, So the king says, therefore, in verse 14, as you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God. The king is saying here, Ezra, because you are a man who has demonstrated your faith and obedience to your God according to the law of God, I want you to also go and inquire and search among the Jews who are in Jerusalem whether they are doing the same thing. Matthew Henry in his commentary says, Ezra must inquire whether the Jews in their religion had and did according to that law, whether the temple was built the priesthood was priesthood was settled, and the sacrifices were offered conformably to the divine appointment. If upon inquiry he found anything amiss, he must see to get it amended. This is God. Thus, thus is God's law magnified and made honorable. In other words, we see here that Ezra demonstrated that inward faith and obedience should be manifest in visible deeds. And works and that the deeds and works performed must reflect then the inward faith and obedience that one has. There is nothing normal or conventional about being redeemed, being set apart, being called by God, being a slave to God and no longer a slave to sin. There is not, not a slave to sin. There is nothing normal about that, and that should be openly apparent as believers living in this world. We should be able to demonstrate that publicly through our works and our deeds that should reflect the faith and obedience that we have to God. We remember examples of publicly apparent faith and obedience. We recall the events of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refused to bow down to the image or the, the giant statue that King Nebuchadnezzar made. We remember the story of Daniel who refused to pray, uh, refused to stop praying to God despite the decree that people basically tricked King Darius into making. And they paid prices for their obedience to God, Right? And God honored their obedience by preserving them. In James 2, verse 26, it says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This doesn't mean that we are saved by our works, but it means that saving faith should be manifested by righteous deeds, by righteous works. D.L. Moody said, a man ought to live so that everybody knows he is a Christian. In other words, there should be publicly apparent faith and obedience. The second element that we'll, we'll cover here is a proper perspective on sin and God's holiness. And if we look in verses 15 through 17... We see here that King Artaxerxes says, "...bring the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold which you find in the whole province of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and of the priests, who offered willingly for the house of their God which is in Jerusalem." And in verse 17, here it is, with this money, what were they supposed to do with it? Therefore, you shall diligently buy bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of your God, which is in Jerusalem. So clearly what King Artaxerxes observed in the life of Ezra was a strict obedience to the commandment of God and the instruction of God to observe the sacrificial and offering practices. And we remember that these instructions laid out in the Levitical law required a series of sacrifices to be made and regular offerings to be made and feasts to be reserved. And why was that? Why was that required? It demonstrated that there was a constant awareness of sin and the separation that existed between the sinful people and their holy God. You see, God instituted animal sacrifices as a clear demonstration of His holiness, the sinfulness of man, the need for substitutionary atonement for sin in order for man to be in the presence of God. Furthermore, sacrifices were not simply made by all people They had to be made through priests. And oh yeah, by the way, the priests themselves required sacrifices to be made on behalf of themselves to atone for their own sins. And sacrifices had to be repeated. It was a recurring process because it was never a complete atonement, right? And so we see this then modeled in the life of Ezra. And therefore, it has been turned into this decree issued by King Artaxerxes. And the king knew that there was a centrality to the worship uh, of the Jews that had to involve the routine and regular and frequent sacrifices and offerings. And that's why you see this huge outpouring of wealth to be able to buy the animals and the resources needed to do that But what the king probably did not know, and what Ezra knew very well, though, is that sin is not merely viewed and addressed from the standpoint of sacrifices, but required confession and repentance from the heart. And we see an example of this just a couple chapters over in Ezra 9. Ezra chapter 9, this is now after they have returned to Jerusalem, they had reinstituted the offerings and sacrifices, and yet here in chapter 9 of Ezra, we see that the people reverted back to marriage with foreign nations. The people were marrying foreign uh, races, and there was this intermingling which was strictly forbidden according to God's original instructions. And so even though they had reinstituted the sacrifices and the offerings, they were still living in blatant sin before God, uh, again, harpening back to Jeremiah's passage that we read earlier about how they returned, but in deception. And in Ezra 9, we can read in verse 5, Ezra said, but, as the evening offering, but at the evening offering I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, O oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads, and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. You see, Ezra knew that it was more than just offering the sacrifices. It was good that that he could demonstrate that and that the king saw that and gave the resources necessary to make the sacrifices, but more importantly, more central to that. Ezra knew that in addition to the sacrifices that God called them to give, sin had to be addressed with appropriate confession and repentance before a holy God. We remember in 1 Samuel 15.22, after Saul improperly offered a sacrifice, Samuel told him to obey, obedience is better than sacrifice, right? Right? The question then comes, do you have a proper perspective regarding sin in light of God's holiness, grace, and mercy? Are you sorrowful for your sin? And do you exercise intentionality and readiness in confessing and repenting? That was what was apparent in the life of Ezra. The next element that we'll go through here is prioritization of resources for worship. And we'll add on to that both worship and service. And we see in verses 18 through 22 here, the king says, Whatever seems good to you and to your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. Also the utensils which are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem the rest of the needs for the house of your God for which you may have occasion to provide, provide for it from the royal treasury. I even I, King Artaxerxes, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the provinces beyond the river that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, may require of you, it shall be done diligently, even up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil and salt as needed. To put some of these numbers in perspective, a hundred talents was approximately four tons in weight, 100 cores was approximately 750 bushels, and 100 baths was 600 gallons. And the other thing to note here in verse 21, the language used here, King Artaxerxes says that whatever Ezra requested, that these treasurers were to do them diligently. And this word diligently can be translated speedily or immediately. And so whatever Ezra needed, whatever whatever Ezra requested, they were to respond immediately in terms of giving the resources that would be needed for worship and service. I'm reminded here of uh, the early church in Acts, in Acts 2, verses 43 through 47, Uh, You can turn there if you would like. We'll just be there briefly. But in verse 45, it says of the new believers in the early church, it says they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And so here is an example of how the early church was generous with what they had to provide for the needs in the church to provide the resources needed for corporate worship and for service. And this is in stark contrast from the story that we all recognize from Acts chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira, who were deceptive in their giving and intentionally withheld resources while lying to everybody else, making everyone else think that they were giving what they thought that they were giving. What to take away from this uh, passage here in Ezra is not so much the absolute amount of what was given, but to recognize two things. Number one, we can see that resources were freely given and that if there was need, more resources would be given. And second, these resources were given according to God's will And according to God's law I know that when it comes to giving of resources and specifically it it, it has to then come down to also what we financially give or our monetary offerings and I want to be clear to say that we're not trying to tell people to give more we're not accusing anybody of not giving enough the point is to be Reflective of our attitude of giving, do we have a prioritization of our resources to be given in generosity to the church or for worship and for service and for ministry? A.W. Pink writes in his short book titled Tithing, there are a few subjects on which the Lord's own people are more astray than on the subject of giving. They profess to take the Bible as their only rule of faith and practice, and yet in the matter of Christian finance, the vast majority have utterly ignored its plain teachings and have tried every substitute the carnal mind could devise. Therefore, it is no wonder that the majority of Christian enterprises in the world today are handicapped and crippled through the lack of funds." So we must ask ourselves: are we prioritizing our resources so that we can be generous with what is needed to provide for worship and service? In the book that the men just recently finished, uh, in the book that our, our men's group just recently finished, going through Five Things Every Christian Needs to Grow by R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul writes this: every time we use a resource we make a decision, and that decision reveals what kind of stewards we are. That's where God holds us accountable. Going on, we're gonna study the fourth element here, passionate obedience. The fourth element of the ultimate eternal impression is passionate obedience, and we see this in verse 23 whatever is commanded by the god of heaven let it be done with zeal for the house of the god of heaven so that there will not be wrath against the kingdom of the king and his sons that word there those words that phrase let it be done with zeal can be translated as let it be done diligently let it be done quickly Let it be done carefully. And notice verse 23 opens by saying whatever. That Hebrew word also means anything and everything. So in other words, anything and everything that God commands, respond in obedience to follow it quickly, carefully, and diligently. And the king goes on to say here, please do these things Obey with zeal, follow with zeal, so that there will not be wrath against the kingdom of the king and his sons. Interestingly, King Artaxerxes must have understood that God was ultimately even over him. And that his kingdom uh, was in many ways dependent, the well-being of his kingdom, if you will, he understood and acknowledged that the well-being of his own kingdom was somehow dependent on the Jews' obedience to God. As believers, we must ask ourselves then, are we quick, careful, and diligent to obey anything and everything that God has commanded of us? Are we quick, careful, and diligent to obey anything and everything that God has commanded of us? We'll move on to the next element here, proper work ethic. Proper work ethic, and we see this in verses 24 through 26. King Artaxerxes here says, We also inform you that it is not allowed to impose tax, tribute, or toll on any of the priests, Levites, singers, doorkeepers, Nethinim, or servants of this house of God. You, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the river, even all those who know the law of your God, and you may teach anyone who is ignorant of them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed upon him strictly, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of goods or for imprisonment. We see this interesting series of verses here. In verse 24, the king specifically addresses those who have dedicated their lives to work and service in the temple. And here we see that uh, they were exempt from additional taxation or tolls, uh, and that was uh, strictly to be disallowed. It was not allowed Okay, the Hebrew word there says it is not lawful to impose taxes, tributes or tolls on these people who have given their lives to serve in the temple. One commentary writes that this this act, if you will, this decree put a great honor upon those serving in the temple. Gave great honor upon them as free denizens of the empire and it gave them liberty to attend their ministries with more cheerfulness and freedom. So we see here the special place that God has for those devoted to serving and managing the temple. The same can also be said of people who have given uh, their lives to full-time ministry, whether that's our pastor, uh, whether that's pastors across the world, or missionaries across the world. Um, that there should be special care and attention given to them to support them so that they can be free, cheerful, and inspired and encouraged to continue in their in their work in ministry. And then the, the text shifts in verses 25 and 26. The king here says, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges and so Ezra was given the charge he was given the job himself of selecting other people who would be helping to lead and run if you will run the society run the government uh, in uh, in Jerusalem so at this time the Jews were essentially reestablishing a theocratic form of society which is opposite from how our society is today, where there is separation between church and state. But in this theocratic form, uh, the church, if you will, or the temple and the priests, I I shouldn't say the church, but the the temple and the priests then exercised the authority over society. And so what we see here is that Ezra has been charged to uh, appoint people who would fill those roles within the government and society, and what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to work according to God's wisdom, right? In verse 25, Ezra himself has been charged to do his job according to the wisdom of your God. And in turn, he was supposed to appoint judges and magistrates who would do the same thing, that they would do their jobs according to the wisdom of your God. And what were they supposed to do in those job capacities? It says there that they were supposed to teach the people the law of God. They were supposed to teach and instruct the people about the law of God. And furthermore, then, they were given authority, then, to execute the consequences for those who would choose to disobey the laws of God. So here we see an example of proper work ethic. Working according to the wisdom of God, and in our work, doing our duties in such a way that we manifest and teach the law of God to those around us. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Even in in our world today, in, in whatever capacities we have, God has called us to work according to His wisdom and to make His Word known. That's basically what we're saying. In Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24, it says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily, As for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. That that complements what we just said in terms of working according to the wisdom of God and making his word and his truth known in the work that we do. And we do so ultimately because we know that we are working and serving our Lord. And then finally, we're going we're gonna to close up here by covering the sixth point. The final element of the ultimate eternal reputation or final eternal impression is that we must point to God's glory. And we see that here in verses 27 and 28. We'll read together. It says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. And has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Now from everything that we read in the king's decree, Ezra could very easily have just reverted back to what he had described at the beginning of the chapter, right? He could have referenced his own accomplishments. He could have referenced back to his special chosen pedigree. He could have boasted about his intelligence, but he didn't do any of that. Instead, he blessed the Lord, and he thanked the Lord. In other words, he pointed to God's glory. What is God's glory? John MacArthur provides a succinct definition in providing a foundational understanding of the glory of God. He says, You have to start by dividing the glory of God into two different categories. One is the intrinsic glory of God, the glory which God himself possesses and has eternally possessed, apart from any creation or any acknowledgement of that glory outside of the Trinity. His intrinsic glory, therefore, is the sum of his nature, the essence of his nature in its fullness, the full panoply of all that God is. That's the first part, the first category of God's glory. The second category is his ascribed glory, and this is the glory we give to him, which is, in essence, a recognition of his intrinsic glory. We have to see we don't add to his intrinsic nature. There is nothing missing. When we glorify God, we simply acknowledge the reality of his glory, and you will no doubt spend your lifetime coming to an ever-increasing grasp of that intrinsic glory. It is inexhaustible. And so we see here at the end of this chapter, Ezra following the recording of the king's decrees turns back, and he points to God's glory. Ezra blesses God for sovereignly working through circumstances and people. He put it. He says, "God put it in the king's heart to commission Ezra and to issue the decree that he just recorded." And in verse twenty-eight, Ezra acknowledges that it was God's hand. God's hand was involved in King Artaxerxes' kindness toward him. Make no no doubt about it, Ezra did not put any confidence in the flesh, but knew very well that it was God himself who was working through Ezra and through Ezra's circumstances, and ultimately it was all for his own glory. The Westminster Catechism says man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And that ultimately should be what drives us in our lives and in the impressions that we strive for. We want to strive to glorify God in the process. We will enjoy Him forever. By the way, God is the one who supernaturally works in us to bring about all of these elements that we just went through. It is nothing of ourselves. It is impossible for the unbeliever to display these traits, these elements, and to leave anything close to an ultimate eternal impression. It is all a work of God. Look here in Psalm 8, if you will. If you turn to Psalm 8, a short psalm, a familiar psalm, and just read through it here, taking in how David speaks of the sovereignty of God. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. "...when I consider your heavens the work of your hands, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet." all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Did you guys see God's sovereignty and God's glory? God sovereignly working ultimately for his glory. Philippians 2, verse 13 says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work. For what? For his good pleasure. Ephesians 1. We're just getting off the ground with our study in Ephesians, and I know our pastor is eager to get back into the study here, but I just want to direct our attention back to Ephesians 1. Again, highlighting the the complementary nature here of God's sovereignty and God's glory. If you turn with me to Ephesians 1 and read together, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. This is just a run-on sentence, run-on sentence, displaying the sovereignty of God and the glory of God. Amen? Ultimately, the ultimate eternal impression is nothing that we bring and everything that God does in us and through us for His glory. Ian Murray wrote a biography on Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and an excerpt from that biography reads, There could be no higher privilege than that of being a messenger of God who has pledged his help and presence to those whom he sends. When, as happened at times, people referred in admiring terms to Dr. Lloyd, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' self-denial in entering the ministry, Dr. Jones repudiated the intended compliment completely. And he says, quote, I gave up nothing. I received everything. I count it the highest honor that God can confer on any man to call him to be a herald of the gospel. count it the highest honor that God can confer on any man. And that's what our impression should be leaving, right? It's the gospel truth. It's the glory of God. That's the impression we should leave. That's the reputation we should have. That's the legacy that should be left. Ezra 7, verse 28 here says specifically, Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me. And with that, I just want to finish with two additional passages to to encourage and strengthen us as individual believers and as his church to strive to depend upon our God, to enable us to live lives that would reflect him and that we would be enabled to leave an ultimate eternal impression in this world. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And then finally, in Revelation chapter 3, Christ talks to the church at Philadelphia, and he says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name, behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance I also will keep you. May that encourage us as we reflect upon and as we're challenged then to live lives that will ultimately leave the internal impression of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you For the example of Ezra, a man that you sovereignly placed and enabled, who was so capable and made such an incredible impression upon the king in his time, we thank you that he is an example of elements that must be present in individuals who are making an eternal ultimate impression that reflects you and brings you glory. Lord, may we remember that our our impression matters and that we have an incredible opportunity as believers in this world to make you known and to live for your glory. And Father, if there are those here in our congregation in our midst who do not know you, who are unsure if they are saved, may they recognize that The sinfulness of man will always tarnish any efforts to leave a lasting, favorable impression. Lord, we can do nothing that will leave a sweet aroma for anybody to remember us by. It is only through You, it's only through redemption, through the blood of Your Son, that we can leave anything positive here and not only that, that we can please you. Ultimately, it's not about what is left in the world, but ultimately it's what honors you and brings you glory. And so we pray We pray for those who are not saved, that they would recognize their sin, that they would turn and repent, and that they, they would choose to follow in faith and obedience. And in turn, you will provide them the means to live with these elements that we just studied through. All for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.